This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. everyone and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest today is Emma Kuby, the author of Political Survivors, The Resistance, the Cold War, and the Fight Against Concentration Camps After 1945. And the book was published by Cornell University Press in 2019. Hi there, Emma. Hi, Roxanne. Could you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in working on France? Sure, um, absolutely. So I, well, I'm currently uh, a professor at Northern Illinois University. As of August 15th, I'll be an associate professor. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so I think I came to French history probably more kind of circumstantially than a lot of people did. I'm not a lifelong Francophile. I didn't have any family connection to France. I didn't spend any time there as a child. I was a gender studies major as an undergraduate at Brown. And when I was a sophomore, I was required as part of the gender studies curriculum to take a modern European women's history class as one of the gender studies requirements. And the person teaching that class was, was Carolyn Dean. The class really, I guess it, it changed my life. Uh, it was revelatory wow. in terms of, yeah, what history could be and do. Um, and I became, kind of immediately after taking it, I added history as a double major. And then I fell into French history, um, partly because I had some French and partly because that was Carolyn Dean's specialty. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so the real turning point um, was that she and several other Brown professors then, when I was about to graduate, helped me apply for this bizarre, wonderful post-undergraduate fellowship that wow. essentially, yeah, <laughs> a rare, rare beast. Uh, so this fellowship sent me to Paris to live for a year after I graduated from college. And during that time that I was, I was living in France, I decided to apply to graduate school in French history. And I went to Cornell um, and worked with Dominic Lecapra and Steve Kaplan. And how did you get interested in this project? Um, so in my Second year of graduate school, I took a Soviet history research seminar uh, with Peter Holquist, who was then at Cornell. And it was a great class. I could not do research in Soviet history. I didn't have any relevant languages. So Peter Holquist and I kind of worked out this deal whereby I could write about French intellectuals' responses to Soviet communism in the 20th century. And I was leafing through Tony Judd's past imperfect and really just at random, um, there's a two-sentence passage about Sartre's debate with a guy named David Rousset about Soviet communism and the gulag. 
And I decided to see if I could find out anything else about this David Rousset guy. I love these stories of how people sometimes happen upon these amazing projects. It's bizarre, right? But but this the story isn't that neat. Because um, I wrote the paper for this class. It left me with a lot of questions. I was fascinated with what I found out. There was a lot more going on there than I had sort of imagined. French intellectuals, you know, debating Marxism or whatever. And I went to coffee with Peter Holquist afterwards and said, you know, I think this is my dissertation. He sort of said, eh, don't write a dissertation about (laughs) old French intellectuals fighting with each other about the gulag. The the other stuff you've been doing is about Algeria, like run with that. And so so I did not write this as my dissertation. I wrote it as one chapter in a much bigger dissertation that was largely about the Algerian war. And then it was only um, in 2012 when I, for an edited volume, I decided to explore the Algeria piece of Rousset's story that I realized that, in fact, this was also a story about decolonization. And and I realized there was a book there and that it was the book that I wanted to write. That's an amazing story, Emma. (laughs) It was foolhardy. I would not advise graduate students to uh, take on a first book project that was not their dissertation. Well, it worked out. I mean, it's a pretty fantastic book. Oh, thank you. So just to kind of establish a little bit of background here, the book tracks the story of Rousset, this figure who is the founder of the, I'm going to try to get this right, the Commission Internationale contre le Régime Concentrationnaire. You got it. Or International Commission Against the Concentration Camp. Regime, which we're going to go with CICRC from now on, if that's okay with you. That sounds very good to me. I mean, I know that you get into his story in the first chapter of the book, but I feel like before we talk about it at all, we need to know who who Husay was, yes, who he was before the founding of this commission, um, and maybe uh, if you can give us the kind of short timeline of the commission's uh, story. Absolutely. So the CICRC uh, was a group that was founded in 1949 by David Rousset. Rousset was a Buchenwald and Neuengamme survivor. And before the war, he had been a Trotskyist political activist, um, a small-time journalist. After the war, um, he returned to France and wrote two very important books about the Nazi concentration camp experience. Um, these works published in 1946 and 1947, uh, L'Univers Concentrationnaire and Les Jours de Notre Mort, they've been forgotten today. They were, at the time, really the most important testimonial accounts of the camps. Um, and Rousset became, he was sort of catapulted into celebrity, really, by writing them. The books won prizes. Uh, Rousset became friends with Sartre and Merleau-Ponty and other intellectual celebrities in the process of writing them. He began to write articles regularly for Le Ton Moderne and other major journals in France. There were pictures of him in the paper all the time. Rousset left the Trotskyist party shortly after the Second World War, um, and he kind of cast around politically for a while. Uh, he and Sartre founded a political party together. In 1949, around about 1949, he chose sides in the Cold War. Um, He decided to condemn the Soviet Gulag as a concentration camp system analogous to the Nazi camp system. And he published in uh, Le Figaro Littéraire a front page appeal calling on other political deportees to the Nazi camps to come together and undertake an investigation 
of the Soviet gulag, of the Soviet camp universe, which he charged was a hallucinatory repetition of the Nazi camp universe, absolutely identical. So uh, this project began in 1949. It started with French survivors. The French survivors who joined Rousset were generally quite prominent. Many of them had written testimonial literature of their own. Germain Tillon uh, was an important member, uh, the, the ethnographer, and uh, Louis-Martin Chauffier, a Catholic writer, Edmond Michelet, who would later be Minister of Justice under de Gaulle, uh, so a number of prominent survivors of Dachau, Ravensbrück, Buchenwald, Neuengamme, and so on. And the group then internationalized. It eventually drew in supporters from seven different Western European countries. And together, these men and women, uh, women were a surprisingly powerful presence in the group. Uh, they investigated detention conditions, not just in the USSR. Rousset was kind of quickly persuaded by other participants uh, that it had to be a global project. Um, but also in Spain and Greece, in French Tunisia, Mao's China, and in French Algeria. The Algerian investigation was at the peak of the Battle of Algiers in 1957 during the Algerian War, um, and it, it eventually destroyed the group for reasons that I talk about in the book. But that's the kind of short history of what they did together. So I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about the notion of political survivors as the big rubric for the project what does that mean to you as an author? And what did that mean to the actors that you're looking at? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, I shouldn't pretend that this title was the working title of the book all along. Um, the book in my head for many years was Expert Witnesses. Huh. But I like the title Political Survivors, which I compromised on with the press, because I think it captures two essential things about the history that I relate in the book. The first thing is that the, the CICRC described itself as an apolitical humanitarian organization, but its work was profoundly political and its members made political meaning, uh, not just humanitarian meaning out of their experience in the Nazi camps. Of course, part of this has to do with the spotlight that the group shone on the Soviet Gulag and the way in which the group became entangled with the politics of the Cold War, uh, the way in which it eventually accepted funding by the CIA. It also has to do, though, with the way in which the group became entangled with the politics of decolonization, and in particular, the Algerian war. So one thing that the book is trying to do is, is explore those political commitments. And the, it's not just that the political commitments were informed by memory of World War II's violence, but also that the opposite was true, that the politics, the ongoing politics of the post-war Cold War moment gradually reshape the kinds of meanings that people drew from, from the recent past. Right. The other sense um, in which the, the title Political Survivors has meaning to me um, is that it, it captures the exclusion at the heart of the organization. All of the members of the CICRC deliberately, according to formal policy, had originally been political deportees. Um, they had been resistance deportees to the Nazi camps, as opposed to so-called racial victims of deportation. So a lot of the book is about exploring the implications and the consequences of that exclusion um, mm -hmm. and what it tells us about how memory of Nazi violence could and couldn't be mobilized in the immediate post-war decades, right? Um, why only a particular kind of survivor could be recognized as having been a paradigmatic witness to what uh, Nazi violence meant. I think that for my actors, they self-consciously understood themselves as survivors. Um, I think there's 
been some misconception that, that that term didn't emerge until later in the post-war era. And that's not the case. Many of my actors talked about themselves as, as being survivors. Mm-hmm. And they understood themselves as political actors within that identity of being a survivor. It wasn't simply that they had already been politically engaged before the war uh, and now were politically engaged again. They understood the experience of having survived the Nazi camps as the grounding for a post-war political identity um, as a grounding for for intervention, a way to make choices in a Cold War world. So resistance, you know, I Emma, I just finished teaching this undergrad seminar on the French experience of World War II. Yeah. And you know, so many of my students were really interested in the idea of a mythology of the resistance. Yeah. You know, they'd learned about the resistance and not necessarily about ways of criticizing that idea as a myth. So I wonder if in taking on that next big word in the title, um, you could talk about how this book interacts with the history and memory of the resistance. Yeah, this this is a word that I, you know, I struggled a bit with having in the title, uh, precisely because the book in no way engages with the history of uh, the resistance itself. It is Mm-hmm. Um, purely about this afterlife of the concept, very much for people who, you know, were genuine resistors. Um, but what I'm interested right. in, right, is the ways in which that could be mobilized as an identity after World War II. So there are a couple of ways in which I'm interested in the resistance in the book. One is the way in which through the period that I'm writing about, political authority and legitimacy continue to be located in the resistance in in post-war France and in some other post-war Western European countries um, that had had experiences of occupation and deportation. Mm -hmm. So particularly, you know, I write about the figure of the resistance deportee, always in kind of contradistinction to the, the Jewish racial deportee as, you know, someone who had uh, the ability to kind of intervene politically in particular kinds of ways um, because of the national mythologies, right, that they had become linked to through mm-hmm. having kind of taken on this act of essentially what was understood as martyrdom um, on the part of the nation. And then the other, you know, kind of way in which this interests me is the CICRC was an international organization. And so I write in the book about how a kind of myth of a European resistance emerged not out of the experience of World War II itself, but out of these kinds of Cold War projects that brought together resistors and deportees from different Western European countries, uh, such that, you know, by the early 50s, we have people saying, like, from the Europe of Dachau to the Europe of Strasbourg. Um, and this is ridiculous, right? There there was no, hmm. Dachau was not a, a beautiful breeding ground of European sentiment. But retroactively in the 1950s, this notion of there having been a kind of European resistance that conveniently lines up with the Atlantic Alliance does emerge. And so that's one of the things that, that kind of comes up in the book. Uh, I guess the question I want to ask about the Cold War component, I mean, you mentioned the CIA funding, certainly the centrality of the opposition to the Soviet gulag and camps um, as the kind of the heart of the origin story of the organization. Um, And we'll talk about all that more. But maybe I would rather ask you to say something about the way this book changes how we think about the Cold War, or if you see it as an intervention in the literature on the Cold War. And I'm especially thinking about the ways that 
more recent scholarship has asked questions about the relationship of the Cold War to imperialism and decolonization, you know, how we use, but also might want to interrogate the idea of the Cold War as a category. Do you have anything to say about how that how this project fits in with all of that? Great. So, I mean, I have a couple of, of, I think, ways that I can respond to that. One of the things that I was certainly writing against in the book was a kind of reductionist way of telling Cold War organizational and intellectual history such that it just becomes sort of, you know, was this project on the American side or on mm-hmm. the Soviet side? And if so, you know, where did the money come from? And then, okay, we, we understand what it was, we can read it in instrumental terms and we're sort of done thinking about it. There's a lot of language of pawns, right? The Cold War is essentially about the Americans and the Soviets and and certainly essentially about state actors. Um, and so everyone else, uh, you know, is only of interest insofar as they serve one side or another. Um, and so one thing I insist on in the book is that there's really no way to make sense of um, the CICRC's project within that kind of rubric without taking seriously the ideas and concepts in which the group grounded its practices. And so I try to be you know, very clear with readers about where money is coming in from and uh, the American actors that become entangled in the CICRC's project. I'm very explicit about that. But I try try um, as well to to write the group's history as an intellectual history um, and to point out the ways in which it's the immense power of its framework of claiming to fight against concentration camps in the post-war uh, world is a, is a framework that was not handed to members um, by American actors. The Americans were actually baffled by this uh, in the early days of the CICRC, like, Okay, you know, we we have a better language of slave labor. If they really want to talk about it this way, they can. Um, and then they sort of see the way that this language functions in countries like France that experience deportation to the Nazi camps, and they, they come to understand its utility as a Cold War tool. But there are also a number of decisions the CICRC makes along the way, uh, like the exclusion of Holocaust Jewish racial deportee survivors, that can't be explained in Cold War terms at all, and that you know need to be understood within the chronology of the post-war as opposed to the Cold War when you think about kind of what was going on right. in the 50s. And then, yes, absolutely, writing the Cold War with decolonization um, and imperialism at the heart of it. And one of the main things that I think I try to do in the book is to look at the ways in which the members of the CICRC thought that they understood the political landscape in which they were operating. They thought that they understood what the sides were. And then the Algerian War happened, and that was entirely scrambled for them. Mm-hmm. The categories that they were working with, we are all on the same side, right? Because we are essentially anti-totalitarian members of a very broad sort of non-communist left and center. We can work together and we can work together with the Americans. Uh, all of that was was destroyed uh, in the confrontation with the violence of decolonization. It turns out that people's ideologies about colonialism don't simply map onto their, their thoughts about Soviet communism. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. You mentioned at some point in the introduction, Emma, and it certainly the rest of the book bears this out, that this is a different history of this period, 1945 to 1962. So, you know, end of Second World War and end of Algerian War. And so I guess kind of related to this question about the Cold War, but not maybe entirely contained by it, the the function, I guess, of the 50s here, like the idea of doing a project on the 50s and what it means to turn to the 50s, but then also what you might have to say with respect to the significance of this pivotal decade and more right after the war and your focus on that period. The 1950s are treated across a number of different historiographies as a kind of before. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're no longer in the immediate aftermath of World War II, right? Um, but they're the sort of waiting room before we get to a series of later turns. Um, right. So, you know, for example, um, in Holocaust historiography, uh, we have this kind of influential notion of... Um, the, the advent of the witness and the birth and growth of Holocaust consciousness beginning in the 60s and 70s. And the 50s are sort of cast as a, a before to that. In French history, you know, um, in French intellectual history and the kind of framework that people like Tony Jutt set up, right, the, the 50s are a before to, a, 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 and to people who have written against Tony Jutt, um, but kind of accept that that chronological framing. So, so Julian Bork, for example, right? Mm-hmm. We've got a later ethical turn, but right. first we've got to get through the 50s. And, and so then a similar thing in human rights historiography, that we supposedly have a human rights revolution that begins in the late 60s or in the, the early 1970s. In the 1950s, we're still firmly in the before. Human rights have not not emerged right. yet properly, according to um, to Sam Moyne and and people who have accepted his chronological framing of the human rights revolution. So I was really struck by the ways in which you know what I was reading in my documents and in my archives didn't fit uh, with that narrative structure. The book isn't an attempt to reset origins points on on those common narratives, right? I'm not arguing that, you know, really the human rights revolution started in 1951. But I'm trying to complicate those narratives to point out that that the 50s weren't a, a waiting room, right, to developments that were going to come later. Before we get into talking about the chapters, Emma... I met you at a French history conference, maybe more than one, I don't know. So there was that, and then... I knew this book was coming and I do this French studies podcast (laughs) and then the book arrived and now I'm just fixating on the title again and it doesn't have France in the title. Yeah. And I I did, I'm going to admit, I had a moment of like slight panic, like, oh, maybe this should, I should just sort of ask them to post this on new books in history and not confine Emma to France. But you know, you, we, when we started talking, you did come into this project through France and you do um, at the outset, really identify this as a French intellectual history. I guess, yeah, I want to ask you to explain a little bit more what what it means to you to think of the project in those ways. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, the project had its origins for me as a French history project. You know, it began with an interest in the French actors who were involved in the commission. It arose for me out of my engagement with French intellectual history. There turned out to be no way of telling the story uh, without much more international casts of actors and thoroughly internationalized sources. Um, And that was true for a number of reasons. I mean, one, because the CSERC had important 
active members from throughout Western Europe. The, the French retained leadership of the group. Rousset and Tillon and Martin Chauffier were probably the most important people involved as official members. Mm-hmm. Uh, but members from other countries were very, very important, particularly Francophone Belgians um, and Scandinavians and the Dutch uh, in, in running the group. It was international in that sense. And then my attempt to figure out what was where the funding was coming from um, turned it into an international project in, a num- in another sense. Um, I had to, to understand Rousset's relationship with a whole variety of American actors, um, labor leaders and intellectuals and, and various CIA liaisons. And then, of course, the CIA CRC investigated globally. But I still see the project as an intervention in, in French history and historiography and in stories that we tell about the post-war French moment. Mm-hmm. And I still see the story as one that is inexplicable outside of the French intellectual and cultural context in which it emerged. So the book's first two chapters, chapters one and two, are exclusively set in France and exclusively about almost exclusively about French actors. Mm -hmm. And the book's final seventh chapter about the Algerian war involves a whole assortment of non-French actors, but it's France's Algerian war and the specific forms of violence that are involved in it Mm. that explain why this organization ceased to exist. And so it's not only the, the presence of French actors at the helm of the CICRC that for me makes this a French history. Um, it's also the key events that, that took place in France from the occupation through the Algerian War that provides some of the most essential context for making sense of the story. Well, and this isn't like a membership check. <laughs> when I read a book like yours, I think being transnational and connecting, you know, so-called metropolitan empire, Europe, non-West, that's just paying attention. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's, and, and like acknowledging the what happened there, as you kind of pointed out, it's like there, you don't really have choice in the matter. Like, right. Because if you're doing a French history, really at any point in the modern period, you're necessarily going to be doing something that has global implications and connections and Right. Um, connections to empire and all of those things, if you're doing it responsibly and well, right? No, I mean, I think that that's right. I think that, you know, for me, the, I mean, the origins point of the kind of history that I'm telling in the book is precisely the deportation of David Rousset and the other French members of the CICRC outside of French borders. Right. And so, you know, there's no way from the outset that this can be a story that is contained within France. Where I think the danger comes in is in accepting actors' claims to be operating transnationally to sort of unquestioningly without paying enough attention to the specific domestic political disputes that they're actually involved in, right? right? So Rousset is is mobilizing tropes about the Soviet gulag in some ways, you know, because of very specific, almost sort of arcane beefs that are happening within the French deportee organizational community among groups with long acronyms. Emma, we've talked a little bit about the kind of contextual uh, work that you're doing in those first two chapters that are really grounded in the French context um, that introduce us to Rousset and tell the story of his 1949 appeal. So I don't think we need to kind of go over that background material, but I guess I want to come at those first two chapters by asking you to talk a little bit about 
these two kind of pillars that become the foundations of the CICRC. The idea that Rousset's work and the term that he coins, the concentrationary universe, and then the emergence of this figure of the experientially expert witness that Rousset is an example of, but, you know, he comes together with others like Tion to kind of solidify as, a, as the category of political survivor. So the first chapter of the book um, is set entirely in the period before the CICRC actually comes into being in 1949. So it kind of tells the story of eventual participants in the CICRC from the moment of the liberation, which is usually more complicated than that, of the Nazi camps by Allied forces up through about 1947. Mm -hmm. Um, So the story of the return. Um, And in that chapter, I try to um, make the case that these sort of ideational um, pillars of the CICRC were already in place well before the Cold War uh, context in which they got mobilized uh, had really um, crystallized. David Rousset's 1946 book, L'Univers uh, the, the Concentrationary Universe, kind of laid out a, a universalizing reading of the concentration camp as a, a kind of human or inhuman space. He read all of the Nazi camps as simply varied but fundamentally similar planets in this universe. Mm. And the ways in which he understood those camps were as an utterly new kind of manifestation um, of limit case human abjection, but also as an entirely replicable experiment. Essentially, he wasn't interested in any precedents for the Nazi camps. You know, he never talks about British concentration camps um, during the Boer Wars. I I don't think he was even aware um, of of Spanish camps in Cuba um, or American camps in the Philippines. Um, He really seemed to think that Nazis had invented at least the kind of concentrationary system that uh, was manifested in, in places like Buchenwald. And directly out of that understanding of this as a replicable uh, form of of human violence, out of that directly flowed the idea that those who had survived those camps had become experientially expert witnesses to this vitally dangerous um, new form of human practice, and that they needed to tell uh, what he called normal men, that this was possible. Hmm. And other survivors also embraced this idea that they had a kind of special knowledge, uh, right, about the nature of of human abasement um, that they could share with other people. Now, I think I I should probably say um, that all of this is pretty foreign to the paradigm within which most people today understand Hitler's chief crimes, because Rousset and other members of the CICRC were primarily not talking about genocide. They didn't frame the chief crime of Nazism as the Holocaust. Um, And in fact, Rousset was pretty explicit. You know, he said the massacres were just massacres. Anybody can kill a lot of people. What is really the the unforgivable thing that has happened here is creating this world, the world of the camp. Um, And the paradigmatic figure in that world of the camp for Rousset and for, you know, broadly speaking, the culture in which he lived was the figure of the deported resistor, uh, the political prisoner someone who had made a conscious political choice, right, um, and had been punished for it by deportation to this concentrationary universe. 
The middle chapters of the book, Emma, move across these different contexts and targets, sites of investigation from, you know, the kind of originary emphasis on the Soviet gulag and concentrationary uh, universe to Franco-Spain, to French Tunisia, Hungary, questions about, you know, how relevant the work of the commission could be in places like China or Africa. So we don't have time to get into every single <laughs> site or investigation, but I do want to ask you about the range of activities that the commission engaged in. And then, yeah, how those activities and their successes and failures um, and outcomes varied, like sort of general things that you would say about the way the work of the commission, the sort of different qualities and results it had, depending on where they were investigating. Yeah. um, Okay. So I think sort of a preliminary thing to say um, in response to that question is that the commission, even though it was originally founded as a kind of propaganda stunt, essentially, uh, to to stigmatize the Soviet Union for the Gulag and to to draw parallels between the Gulag and and the Nazi concentration camps. Ironically, in the long term, it probably did its most important work in the West. It certainly did its most thorough work there. Hmm. The reason for that is because Western governments um, were kind of shamed and cajoled and convinced over time to actually let CICRC investigators come in on the ground and investigate. And they were always very sorry afterward, you know, but <laughs> they, they thought that they got it, right? That these guys were just cold warriors uh, who were sort of looking for an excuse to say that, look, we're even handed. We went to Spain too. Um, and, and so then they could get on with their real task uh, in the minds of, say, Franco's administrators um, of, of condemning the Soviet Gulag and embarrassing Stalin. Right. So the Spanish investigation, which was fascinating to research, you know, I I didn't think in a million years there would be surviving records on the side of the Spanish government. And then there were. Wow. So they in in Greece and in Spain and in French Tunisia and in French Algeria, the CICRC was able to carry out its investigations on the ground, conducting interviews without prison personnel present with um, all kinds of prisoners and detainees. They were able to enact inspections and also to inspect written records um, and admission files and so on. And it's really it's really remarkable work to read about. Uh, other groups weren't doing that in this period. Mm. The Red Cross was sometimes permitted into some of these facilities, um, although their access in Spain had been cut off in 1938. Um, but the Red Cross doesn't publicize its findings. Right. The Red Cross makes them available to, to governments. And the CICRC was, was doing something very different. It was writing up its reports and then publishing them on the front page of Le Monde. And, and they were being reproduced around the world. So, so, so this is part of what the CICRC did. Then um, when it came to the Soviet Union and uh, also to the People's Republic of China, of course, on the ground investigations were out of the question. They couldn't even you know, get visas to go into the countries. Um, and so in those cases, what they did was hold mock trials. And these were kind of very elaborate affairs in which they restaged the Nuremberg style uh, International Crimes Against Humanity Tribunal and put the regimes in question um, on trial, on mock trial, uh, in a courtroom that was entirely composed of Nazi camp survivors. Amazing. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> so these were dramatic productions. And the threat of them was also part of what convinced people um, uh, in Franco's administration, for example, to, to let them come into Spain. It was judged that an on-the-ground investigation would be less embarrassing uh, than one of these trials where, you know, all the judges have, have survived Buchenwald and, and Dachau and Ravensbrück. But, um, but yeah, so these were their kind of two modes of investigation. And they took their work very seriously. The group ran into a lot of problems with their kind of political reluctance to actually deem Western regimes concentrationary. They had a lot of trouble finding a language um, to condemn abuses that they saw as lesser than those of, of Nazi Germany, uh, but nevertheless sort of beyond the pale of human decency. And it was one of the things that, um, you know, that eventually led to the demise of the project was the, the difficulty uh, for members of, of saying, nope, no concentration camps here, uh, when in fact what they had seen was, was disturbing in all kinds of ways. So eventually the task of kind of delivering a verdict, you know, yes or no, is it, is it as bad as Buchenwald, proved to not be a terribly productive way to, to counter ongoing right. state violence, right? Um, <laughs> but it was rhetorically very powerful indeed, and it netted them huge amounts of publicity that they would not have gotten if they had, you know, gone into detention systems and, and asked generally, how is it, instead of asking this yes or no historically comparative question um, about, is it a concentration camp? The book does, Emma, kind of take us from this moment of eruption and creation of the organization through its various activities and then this kind of, you know, peak period from, you know, in the kind of mid-50s when the inquiry in, in French Tunisia happens and then the question about the Soviet invasion of Hungary ha- comes up. But then, you know, there are all of these things, it seems kind of overdetermined, right, that will eventually bring out about the group's demise and you've you know, touched on on one of these threads. It just seems inevitable that this organization was just going to falter. Um, and I just wonder what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that that its collapse was inevitable. Um, you know, I I traced the strains um, that the group was under as the 50s progressed, um, and I do think that they were encountering increasing problems in, in a world in which the, their construction of both you know, past and present uh, were being challenged um, in all kinds of ways, right? Um, so their construction of what, what Nazism's greatest crime had been was still hegemonic, uh, but there was increasing emphasis on the Jewish slowly growing um, on the Holocaust and the Jewish genocide um, in Western Europe in this period. It it would have been hard, um, I think, for them to continue over many more years talking about the concentrationary universe without talking about extermination camps and and without talking about Jews. So that was a real, real problem for them. You know, and then at the same time, right, the changing nature of state violence in the post-war era, the fact that, uh, in fact, you know, horrible things were happening in the world, and those things didn't look that much like Ravensbrück. And right. you know, and meanwhile, the Soviet Gulag was was shrinking. The Soviet Union was remained engaged in various forms of political violence, of course, um, but it was much harder to draw that parallel to the Nazi camps um, as amnesty proceedings took place in the Gulag. So all those things were happening, but it really was kind of the crisis of the Algerian war, I think, 
mm-hmm. without which the, the group would have, you know, continued along in some fashion for, for any number of years. The comparative project um, became so entirely unfeasible in the context of Algeria, where, where the emerging moral crisis uh, for metropolitan French people did not match up with the CICRC's framework for, you know, this is the kind of state violence you need to care about. And at the same time, um, the Algerian war, as you know, as I, as I said earlier, it broke the group apart um, in terms of members' mm-hmm. differing allegiances. And it cut off American funding. But it was as if the group had suddenly sort of become irrelevant to mm-hmm. the urgent conversations that, that were taking place um, in France in that moment. And because in the end, it was a French project I think that made it impossible for them to continue. And I mean, of course, there is the specificity of Algerian decolonization with respect to the longer history of France and its politics in in this period during the war. Of course, that's there. I wonder if there would you say that there's anything kind of generalizable or did these actors or other commentators at the time see the specific crisis of empire and wars and conflicts of decolonization as a broader challenge to the kind of work and the kind of thinking of the organization in terms of memory, comparison, um, the relevance of these political survivors? Is it bigger than Algeria, I guess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question. Um, I think that not... A lot of them, and this was one of the the ways in which um, Algeria was so disruptive for the group, not a lot of them had thought enough about imperial violence for them to have even posed the question in those terms. You know, as I said, they didn't think of concentration camps um, as having anything to do with colonialism. They they thought of concentration camps uh, within a kind of continental rubric of totalitarianism. One member really pushed for them to investigate in in Kenya, and they just ignored her, and you know, kind of thereby missed the the. It's a real tragedy, like the place in which their project arguably had the most real relevance in in the post war era. But they could afford to do that in the case of Kenya um, because there weren't British members. The Algerian War, there was no getting away from. It came to dominate French political life, you know, in a way that that made it impossible for French mm-hmm. members of the group um, to to set it aside. And so, um, Germain Tillon, who whose letter to Lise Borsum from 1960 is kind of the most direct statement I have from any member of the group about why the group fell apart. She, she's writing to this Scandinavian fellow, Robinsbrook survivor, fellow CICRC member, and she just says, "Look, um, I've lost interest in these." these concentration camp questions. My job now has to be helping Algerians. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't see those tasks any longer. You know, she, she tried. She participated in the CICRC's Algerian inquiry. She tried to find a way to make that past experience on her part and that, that experiential expertise relevant to the ongoing kind of crisis of, of France and Algeria. And she couldn't. Some of the things you... You just mentioned the Kenyan example, and then Tion, of course, remind me to, and I can't believe I'm waiting until almost the end of our conversation to to bring this up. You mentioned this earlier, you know, the role that women play in the organization. I can't, I can't believe I'm doing the gender minute at the end. Of the minute. <laughs> <laughs> Can we do a gender minute, Emma? Let's do it. It's like gender week on the syllabus. <laughs> That's right. So yeah, um, if you have some thoughts on 
that dynamic within the organization? The first thing to say um, is that um, I was delighted uh, to be able to write a book about Cold War political activism that included so many women. And the women on the CICRC were powerful and central members of the group. Uh, They had powerful alliances with one another and lovely kind of friendships that come across in the correspondence and that aren't reflected at all in the book, but that made my, my research enjoyable. And, you know, their, their common experience of Ravensbrück, which was a women's camp, nearly all of the female participants in the group were in Ravensbrück, not all of them. It forged a kind of solidarity uh, that was a really interesting dynamic within the CICRC. That said, you know, I, I think it is telling that although women took on leadership roles in the group. Tion was one of the judges in the trial of the USSR, and Elisabeth Engrand uh, was the, the lead prosecutor. Lise Borson, this um, Norwegian woman I've been referring to, was, was one of the Spain investigators and one of the Algerian investigators. So there were women involved in nearly every investigation. They did all kinds of work for the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think it's quite telling that women don't seem to have been involved in the financial dealings at all, you know, which in some ways is good for them. Uh, their, their names don't come up in, you know, in awkward documents about the CIA. Um, I, I mm-hmm. suspect that most of them were, were quite unwitting as to where the money was coming from. But there is the sense of a kind of behind the scenes inner circle from which these women who in many ways were a very important part of the public face of the organization, I, you know, they were nevertheless excluded. So Emma, the long arc of your research and the history that you explore in this book and the kind of rise and demise um, at some level of this organization. Um, In the introduction to the book, you have this, I found it to be quite a kind of moving moment where you talk about your task as the historian in relationship to the CICRC. Um, And I'm just going to read it because it's it's just good. You're talking about the... (laughs) Acknowledgement that François Hollande made in 2015 on the occasion of Tion's uh, symbolic reburial in the in the Pantheon, um, you know, referring to the courage of these resistance uh, deportees, and you say that you can't join Hollande, and I'm quoting you here, in accepting at face value the moral authority that Hussein and his followers assign themselves and in turn denied to others as witnesses for a suffering humanity. To the contrary, you say, the task of illuminating the movement's meaning and significance in its own time demands a reckoning with the limits of its universalism. And and you speak about the, the need for respecting the commission members while at the same time being engaging in a critical inquiry into their ideals and allegiances, their priorities and exclusions. And I just, I guess, I mean, you've said it really well in the book, but I wanted to ask you to say a little bit more about the process of writing this book and of thinking about yourself in relation to these political survivors and the book as a project of critical history uh, that interrogates their assumptions and exclusions and, and work while at the same time kind of honoring this this history and their experiences? This was, I think, the hardest part um, of writing the book for me was um, trying to 
trying to, to be clear with myself about my relationship uh, to the subject matter. And I found that it came up a lot at conferences. You know, I'd, I'd present the work um, and sometimes, you know, I'd get a response from the audience like that I was attacking um, these very brave people who had suffered a whole mm-hmm. lot. Um, other times I would present the work and I'd get a response, you know, that I uh, that I was being too gentle on them. Um uh, it was really hard to figure out how to proceed with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I knew long before I kind of drafted it um, that I wanted to end the introduction with a kind of explicit statement about how I had approached this as a historian. I do have real um, and immense respect for the people who joined the CICRC. Um, And one of the reasons that I chose to open the book with a chapter on the history uh, from 1945 to 1947 is I I wanted readers to have a chance to encounter them first as survivors Mm -hmm. uh, before they encountered them as Cold War activists and as people arranging uh, money drops and, and so on. The members of the CICRC, I think, understood the fact of, of having survived um, as having given them this privilege um, of being able to, to act as what they understood as witnesses, as expert witnesses in the post-war world. And so I felt that, that doing honor to them involved taking that seriously and writing about what they had done mm-hmm. um, and not simply treating them as people whose, whose choices didn't matter anymore after after the Gestapo arrested them. So I tried I tried really hard uh, to balance those different very difficult things, and and I I hope that there are places in the book where it it works. Um, I'm sure there are places where it doesn't. Can, I, I want to say one more thing about this, um, mm-hmm. which is that. For me, some of the central actors in the drama of the story who, who haven't come up in our conversation so far um, are the, the Jewish survivors um, of World War II who were not permitted to become members of the commission, but supported it in various mm-hmm. ways. So the commission's legal advisor, Theo Bernard, spent the entire war in Drancy. He did more for the CICRC than anyone except Rousset, who was Rousset's right-hand man. Um, He participated directly in many of the inquiries. He wrote most of the things that the CICRC published. He was lobbying for them at the UN um, in Geneva and New York and so Mm -hmm. on. Um, This was was his life for a number of years. But that's only really um, visible in the archives. He wasn't a member of the group because he wasn't considered a resistor or a concentration camp survivor. He hadn't been deported outside of France's borders. And so Theo Bernard was kind of, and Leon Polyakov, the Holocaust historian who served as a secretary for the CICRC. Um, these figures were always also present for me as, as I thought about the members. And I think that, you know, there was the task of doing justice to their stories too. Mm-hmm. And so in order to do that, one has to be frank about what the resistor members of the CICRC could and couldn't see about the past and, and the present. What about Jewish survivors who could have been critical of the organization's yeah. work and the exclusion of, like, what about pushback in whatever form from those who were excluded? 
There was no pushback on the membership policies. Um, and I think that in the context of the time, that's not terribly right. surprising. A number of survivors federations in these different countries had very similar membership policies. They were not groups for anyone who had survived the camps. They were groups for people who had been deported uh, because of their selfless political activities uh, or you know other forms of resistance during the war. These were distinctions that were written into French law uh, in different forms of compensation for different categories of survivor within the kind of common sense logic of categories of thinking of the past. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this this made sense to people in the 1950s. Where the pushback eventually came was was within the organization. There were Jews who tried to join, um, and I write about the limits of my knowledge of that mm -hmm. um, in the book. They were denied, and I don't have any evidence uh, that they fought back um, against that that distinction. Um, and I should be very clear: Jews were not banned as such. Jews were welcome to join if they had been deported as resistors. So it was it, it was racial deportees, which in practice meant. Holocaust survivors, right? So the pushback eventually came from Rousset, who who changed his mind and began to argue uh, with the other members of the group um, about the necessity. He said, "Look, this is a group premised on the idea that you know that experience produces a form of of expertise grounded in the body, and therefore racial deportees, uh, quote unquote, have the same expertise that we do." Uh, they should be here with us. But the group fell apart too shortly after uh, that fight began to see which way it would have ultimately been resolved. The epilogue that ends the book, Emma, begins itself with Hannah Arendt's 1958 edition of The Origins of Totalitarianism. And this new passage included in this edition that focuses on the memory of Hitler's concentrationary system and the ways that it hasn't been able to be, it can't be a basis for political community. And I just wonder, given this story of the organization's successes along the way, but also ultimate kind of coming apart, how you position your own project in relation to Arendt's conclusion about this possibility. Uh, yeah, I don't think that I'm... Arentian um, in my kind of thinking about the impossibility of you know, of traumatic experience imparting lessons, and Arendt felt this way already. You know, she includes similar language in in the concentration camps essay in 1948. Um, mm -hmm. She she didn't need to see the CICRC fail to you know to conclude this. But for me, you know, the place that I sympathize more with Arendt is in the notion that that we have to identify with the suffering of other victims before we can respond to their pain. Mm. And for me, that's, this is kind of the, what, what Tion was groping towards where she says, who cares about these concentrationary questions? Let's help Algerians. Mm -hmm. We can help others. You know, we can feel compassion for their pain, which is different from ours without concluding that it is exactly like the kind of pain that um, that we ourselves have undergone. I, I, I want to celebrate, you know, the things that this movement did accomplish uh, in the kind of remarkable way in this era before the advent of, um, of human rights discourse, that it, it found, you know, a mobilizing language to use to talk about ongoing human rights abuses um, on a global scale. That's remarkable. But I do think that there are real perils uh, to that particular kind of construction of what it takes for us to see the suffering of, of others. So Emma, you started this book 
Well, I would have said longer ago, but you wrote this other dissertation. So I'm a little confused about when you actually started this book. Years ago? Six months ago? When did you start this book? <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote chapter two of this book in graduate school, and okay. I wrote the rest of it between... 2012 and 2007. Oh, right. You said 2012. <laughs> okay. So several years ago. Several years ago. <laughs> and then it comes out in 2019. Yeah. And I mean, I won't say that the questions it addresses, you know, weren't there for you in any form um, in terms of contemporary politics in 2012 when you decided to push forward with this particular book and over the years since then. But I mean... Yeah. You know, it's a pretty terrible time. And you are, I know this because I've seen it, but also I imagine more than I've seen, people want to know what you think uh, and what someone with your research expertise and knowledge of the history of the question of comparison and analogy between historical concentration camps and current forms of detention and incarceration are, and this is somewhere, something like a question, but I think you know what I'm asking you. I guess, how are you dealing with, you know, your relationship as a historian, but who's, yeah, written a book that speaks to very contemporary and contentious concerns? It has been dismaying to have written a book about concentration camps uh, that turns out to be up to the minute relevant to contemporary American political discourse. Um, it's It's been terrifying. And particularly because, as you say, I didn't write the book in or for precisely this moment. Um, and so, so a lot of the book is geared towards making a set of arguments about the pitfalls of historical analogy, the dangers of assuming that there are clear lessons in the recent past and in these kind of archetypal uh, acts of evil um, in modern Europe that we can kind of unproblematically apply to the present. Um, And and I am now being called upon in various ways, you know, to indeed apply this work to the present. Um, And so that I think adds an extra level of, of challenge for me. At the same time, I do feel as if I and and the book have some things to say about detention and about memory and about compassion and identification when we look upon the suffering of others. Uh, and so I've been trying to articulate those things in, in ways that are maybe um, more accessible than the full book. Yeah. And I should say for people who are listening that I'm going to link to, I, I can't remember what month it came out. It came out in the very start of July. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. So I'm going to put a link to the uh, to Emma's July piece in Descent magazine that kind of addresses these some of these questions and debates about the use of the term concentration camp in a contemporary specifically U.S. context. One one example, anyway, of a place where you've tried to engage with an even broader audience than those who might get a chance to read the book. Emma, I just want to ask you one last question. What are you working on now? Well, um, the next big thing I'm doing um, is very different, um, but I am starting to write a book 
about 19th century French transnational history. Oh, I had no idea. Do not expect it appearing at your local bookstore anytime (laughs) in the near um, or even medium term future. Um, It's a book about um, Flora Tristan and um, her family, including her grandson, uh, the painter Paul Gauguin. And it's using their, their family history across the 19th century. Uh, Tristan was born in 1803 and Gauguin died in 1903. Um, and both of them were, and the intervening generation were, were very um, peripatetic. They had ties to France, but also to Peru and the French Caribbean and French Polynesia, Latin America, um, Central America. So I'm using their family story uh, to try to think about the meaning of bodily freedom in the 19th century, what it meant to have a free body. And yeah, we'll see. Well, that sounds like a project I want to hear a lot about in the years ahead. Uh, Emma, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing the book. Thank you so much, Roxanne. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast series on the New Books Network.